Hello and welcome to the Watford Jazz Junction podcast. I'm Chris. And today I'm chatting with Chris Ingham. So time to get thrown into a very safe pair of jazz hands. Hello, hello, hello and welcome to the third episode of Series 6 of the Watford Jazz Junction podcast. We are well into the swing now of September and welcome to you wherever you are in the world, including any first-time listeners. Check out our back catalogue, why don't you? And if you like what you hear, do let a friend know and make sure you subscribe, lest you were to miss any of our valuable weekly episodes moving forwards. We also sport a lovely website at watfordjazzjunction.com where you can book tickets to see our gigs here in friendly Watford with the Tony Kofi Quintet, who will be painting their portrait of Cannonball Adderley on the 12th of February. But before then, we have the Chrissingham Quartet on the 30th of October with their highly acclaimed Jazz of Dudley Moore show. And obviously more about that later. Now to business. Today, I am joined by a musical jazz polymath who might be one of the busiest people I've ever come across in music, or indeed anywhere. Author, teacher, writer, producer, musician, archive digging, music composing, ivory key playing, club hosting jazz man of all hours, day and night, a wonderful jazz pianist and musical master, it can only be Chris Ingham. Chris, hello, how are you? Hello, hello Chris. I've never heard, a, I've never heard an intro uh, that used the word lest. Uh, so congratulations on that one. Oh, thank you very much. I shall take the compliment. Now, a really important thing. So you're a Christopher, a Christian, a Christophe? I'm a Christopher. Right, well, you say very good. This is good company to have joined. Me too. Um, and where do I find you sitting today? I'm sitting in Bardwell in Suffolk, which is where I live. I was born in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, but we were supplanted from the northeast when I was about 10. Yeah. And uh, we've lived in the Bury St Edmunds region ever since, apart from when I went to university for four years in Warwickshire and then went to London for three years. And then we came back to have babies and stayed Suffolk based. God bless you. So you grew up, as you say, for the first half of your childhood in not Suffolk. But then I presume your parents saw the light of the Sunshine Coast. And what was the musical journey then for you in those sort of first 20 years as you moved from Newcastle to God's Own County and as little Chris became <laughs> Big Chris? Were you a sort of jazz guy in your teen years? And Well, I don't know what I was really. My early experience with music was that I was not a straightforward musician. I wasn't a kind of... Um, uh, I wasn't a musician who could be trained in the conventional sense. And I did have violin lessons from about the age of eight until the age of 16, I think. And I was an appalling violin player, a really <laughs> bad violin player, you know, scraping away to grade five. And this this forms the, the, the still the foundation of my formal understanding of how music is and how to notate it uh, is, is from my violin lessons and that little theory exam that you have to take before grade five. I was awful. And uh, the reason I think, looking back on it, I was, I was awful is that I, like many musicians uh, that I've come across since, but not that I came across at the time, I, uh, I don't respond to having to make music from, from a page. In other words, I'm a poor music reader. And I genuinely think there is something called, uh, something along the lines of music dyslexia. I find it hard to translate uh, the symbolic representation of music into actual music. Mm. And my brain doesn't work quick enough. However, uh, you know, that particular route, my brain doesn't quick, uh, isn't quick enough. However, 
my ear is very quick. So to this day, if I get handed a bit of a score, you know, if somebody wants me to play an intro or something, I, I, if I can, you know, if I... <laughs> If I can humble myself uh, at the time, I feel comfortable enough to say, I'll just say to somebody, how does this go? Right, right. And they'll go, oh, yeah, that goes, that goes, ba ba doop beep and I'll play it straight back. But it would have taken me 30 seconds to get it off the page and to be able to find that music, you know. So that's my overriding memory of early music making is yeah, being yeah. Uh, uh, in pain trying to make uh, conventional music on the violin. And then on the side, figuring stuff out myself using the Beatles' complete songbook, you know. So I was, I was, I was figuring out chords on the guitar, uh, thanks to the handy shape, the, the guitar shape things they used to put uh, yeah. on, on top of songbooks, still do probably. And I was trying to then translate everything I was learning in my ear from, from that method and putting it on the piano. And that's how I made all the connections. Mm. And my first jazz experience was when I was invited to play in the, uh, the school trad band, traditional jazz group playing kind of New Orleans style music. Yeah. And I remember making almost instant oral connections between playing things like All of Me on rhythm guitar and the first two chords of You're Gonna Lose That Girl by the Beatles. Right, you know, right, right. Uh, I would make that connection. Oh, it's in the, on the Beatles thing. It's it's C to E seven, and on 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 all of me, it's B flat to D seven. That's the same sound. And from that moment, you know, I was. That's how I went on my kind of oral journey and my autodidact journey to becoming a jazz musician. Yeah. So pattern then seems very important, and visual clues, but most importantly, your your ears. I think that's very very reassuring probably to half of musicians i mean who's to guess how many people respond well to to the notes on the page but knowing Mm. that there is you know something concrete in a different route that produces the same sound and the the same joy i think is really reassuring and i don't i don't think we hear enough about about that side of music no and you certainly didn't hear enough about it in in when i was uh learning in the 1970s Mm. uh no no one said oh Perhaps he's just an oral-driven musician. Yeah. <laughs> they just thought, oh, no, he's terrible. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? We, we throw these notes in front of children and expect them all to respond in the same way. So I've got a wonderful music anthology here in the bosom of Watford Jazz HQ. Um, it's a yeah. coffee table classic. It's called Music, the Definitive Visual History. And coming through <laughs> it, um, I don't know, a month or two ago, because your name was in my mind, I said, oh, my gosh, Chris Ingham's an author of this. And then, obviously, I checked you out a bit more because we were doing the podcast and I discovered you'd written The Rough Guide to Sinatra and to the mm-hmm. Beatles and books on mm-hmm. Steely Dan and Billie Holiday and loads of stuff. Mm-hmm. And and I've been in a bit of a, a productive fug, shall we say, since the start of summer. Might, yeah. might be post-lockdown blues. So I just yeah. want to know what drives you and motivates you because you're working across so many things, but none of those things happen without an awful lot of effort and diligence and something I imagine that's driving you forwards. What is it? That's, uh, that's interesting. Someone once described uh, me in a review as, as a force of nature or something. <laughs> I, I don't think I am, mate. Uh, that's, I don't even know what that is. But uh, I think what he was saying was the same thing that, that you just said, which it looks like I'm doing loads of stuff and it looks like I have done loads of stuff. But I look back and an awful lot, you, I'm not a driven guy in that way at all. Mm. A lot of it was just, it was just luck, man. It was just, you know, the whole writing thing 
I never had any aspiration to being a music writer at all. Really? No, no. And it all originated with my friendship with a, a fellow called Jim Irvin, who used to be the lead singer in a, an 80s pop band called Furniture. And they had, uh, you know, a couple of hits. Cool. And uh, when Furniture were breaking up, uh, I got to know him on a circuitous route uh, by acting with his sister in a pantomime. I was the pantomime dame. She was the, uh, <laughs> the leading lad. And uh, he came along to see the pantomime and we, and we hit it off just as people. Yeah, yeah. And when Furniture were breaking up, he uh, contacted me. And, uh, and by this time, I was, I was back in Suffolk and having babies. But he contacted me and said, hey, come on, let's, shall we try and write some songs? And which involved him coming up to my house quite a lot. And we would sit around into the early hours and just talk about music. And he had already got a gig by this time uh, at the Melody Maker. And uh, he was about to get a, a job at Mojo Magazine. Hmm. And because uh, I, I think they had a meeting at Mojo Magazine in which the editor said, look, who can we get to write for, for Mojo rather than just get everybody from the NME and the Melody Maker? Let's, rather than just, you know, promote the Inkies. <laughs> Why don't we? Is there anybody else that you know who might, you know, be interesting for Mojo Magazine? And he thought of me because we basically disagreed about virtually everything musically in, 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 you know, in a benign, friendly kind of way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we, our, our tastes were polar opposites. It meant that, that actually the songs we wrote were quite interesting. Uh, but our conversation, he would say, oh, man, listen to this. Listen to this uh, Van Morrison B-side. And I'm going, man, that's horrible. You know, take that off. Listen to this. Listen to this Genesis 20 minute track. And he'd go, that's horrible. You know, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. that was that was all great. But we all we always were quite articulate about why we thought it was horrible or why we thought it was great. So he remembered that and he said, look, I've got this musician guy who uh, I don't know whether he can write, but he can certainly talk about music. I did a couple of audition pieces for Mojo, one of which was a, a review of the Tony Bennett Unplugged Right. Record. Do you remember yeah, that yeah, from yeah. 1993? Yeah, absolutely. Where he had KD Lang on and Elvis Costello on. And it was great. It was a great resurgence for Tony Bennett. And I did an Alan Hull review as well, who was uh, the Lindisfarne songwriter. The, the, the Alan Hull was uh, published and the Tony Bennett wasn't, but it was. It, I passed the audition, basically. And, I, and from that moment... I was a music writer. That was one of the things that I did, you know. And, and uh, from there, I ended up getting lead reviews of the new Radiohead album, for goodness sake. Why on earth they asked me to do that? I have no idea. But uh, there you go. I did that. I was flown to New York to meet Steely Dan. I was flown to New York to meet Paul Simon. What? And, and Yoko Ono. Yeah, all these things. Yeah. Good it's, it's amazing. I, for a while, I had a three-year period where I was sort of golden boy at, at Mojo. And then it all ended. I made a mess of the Paul Simon interview. That's what it oh, was. Oh, no. Uh, because I'd gone there. We were, I was supposed to be doing a kind of overview of his entire career. My first question to him was, oh, what happened to that musical The Cape Man? Because he just had a terrible flop on Broadway with I, The Cape yeah, Man. Yeah. And I tell you, he, he talked for an hour about that, and I couldn't get him off the subject. And every time I tried to change the subject, <laughs> he, he stopped me. He, said, he, he just said, I, I haven't finished. I haven't finished. And I never got it, you know. So, so I came back with really thin material, and I was never asked again. <laughs> I just didn't. Hey. I didn't have the kind of ruthlessness to uh, to cut through, you know, music superstars when they want to go off on. Oh, one. Well, the way I see it, Chris, uh, Paul Simon definitely owes you one. I mean, or maybe <laughs> you know, maybe it's given you gave you back some time to to focus on other things, which may be. 
are Boone. Absolutely. You know? No, it's well, you know what? I, I always felt like I was uh, moonlighting. It, it was never me. You know, once I'd written about the people that, that I admired, I was now being asked to write about people that I didn't care about. Uh, you know, I remember one particular interview, going for one particular interview with a guy who I shan't name, uh, who was in a band that I didn't like and who had be, had become a solo artist whose records I didn't really rate, but I was being given the gig to go and interview him. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I'm a better guitarist than this guy. Why, you know? So I just reached the end of my rope. I share with Paddy McAloon of of, uh, Prefab Sprout, who's a, a musical hero of mine, just an ongoing disinterest in what's considered to be the untouchable canon of great rock artists. Uh, I've always been really, really selective about, about you know, almost involuntarily. You can only respond to the music you respond to. Yeah, see, I think this is fascinating, Chris, because ultimately you've got two ears, I've got two ears and all that, and we've all got the one brain, and what goes in has to be a personal experience. And I think there is an awful mm. lot of pressure from what has gone on before to somehow accept that some things are untouchable. And I think that happens in all genres. So that neatly leads me on to, I think, what will be my next question, which is how important do you think looking back is? I mean, you've done some stellar concerts, certainly in the jazz world, built up from the jazz archives, um, obviously including Dudley Moore, who we're going to get to in a minute, but Stan Getz, Mm -hmm. uh, Gil Evans, Mm -hmm. and Hoagie Carmichael, right? To to name a few. Mm What is it about a project-based show that tickles your fancy when there is a, you know, a retrospective element of foot? Well, that's quite a complicated one. I think there's several strands to it. Uh, firstly, let me uh, remind you of the great Radio 2 show on uh, Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock, hosted by Benny Green. Ooh. Do you remember this show? This 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 predates Elaine Page and the musicals. Yeah, I know, I know the <laughs> Benny Green. You were going was, back a bit. This was... This was back for me. It was the it was the hippest hour on radio, and Benny Green would do his slightly over erudite <laughs> script about about the great songwriters, yeah, Rodgers yeah. and Hart, Gershwin, all that stuff. And I was entranced by this as a teenager. Uh, on the one hand, I was listening to you know the Sex Pistols. On the other hand, I was taping Benny Green every Sunday. You know, I had. A whole library of these things. I absolutely adored it. And there's a there's obviously a part of me that that likes a sort of framing of things that we perhaps are, are in danger of taking for granted mm. if we are aware of them at all. I definitely learnt the pleasure of that kind of approach to, to presenting music. I always I was always absolutely entranced by Ella Fitzgerald's songbook series. You know, the librarian in me loves the idea of, oh, 30 songs by Rogers and Hart. Let's dig into those kinds of things. Okay, so that's 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 the beginning of mm. it, is, is the idea of framing themes in easily digestible but hopefully nourishing kind of chunks. Yeah. In terms of the practical, how I've found myself boxed into this repertoire corner in my career <laughs> is something to do with when we had babies. When we came back to Suffolk to be a to be a family, I couldn't afford to be on the jazz scene, right? You know, because yeah. it's it's not a living. You know, I did quite a lot of singer pianist things in restaurants. You know, and that kept me in that kept me away from a proper job and also continuing to learn my craft. That was great, and I did that for years and years. 
But when the kids no longer needed quite so much dad attention, uh, you know, when they became independent, my focus returned to the jazz scene and I was starting to get asked to play piano in the local jazz clubs for all the visiting uh, players. And I was holding my own. It was all fine. And I thought, oh, it's time, it's time for me to step up a bit, you know, and, and, and do something. Mm. And because I'd been away from it for 20-odd years, I, I, I dabbled with it a little bit uh, 20 years earlier with, with a, a band called the Flanagan Ingham Quartet who did, did a couple of albums, and they were quite well-received. Uh, but they sort of ran their course, that, that group sort of bebop and song group it was quite unusual for its time yeah and you know i'm quite proud of that what we did but i had to take about 18 years out of the scene because i couldn't afford to do it anymore and then uh, i thought right what's the what's how can i get back on it and i and i we we ended up doing a hoagie carmichael show right yeah. in my hometown in Bury st edmunds and the whole idea was just to do it as a one-off for the Bury st edmunds festival uh, but I'm not kidding, I, and I've told this story a few times, but it still amazes me. We did it, and the feeling in the room was astonishing. The response to the the little stories that I told, the little framings, and, of course, the magnificent music of Hoagie Carmichael, which only they only knew some of it. You know, they only knew Georgia on my mind, really, and Stardust, right. and maybe and maybe uh, the nearness of you, which I don't think we even did actually that evening. Mm. But the rest of it was, was whoa, did he do that one? Oh, I didn't know half of that stuff. And they loved it. And uh, Paul Higgs, the trumpeter, uh, the, uh, was in the quartet and still is yeah. at the time. He came to me afterwards and he said, I think we should do this. <laughs> Meaning, you know, let's get some work. Let's make a record. And I went, oh, you sure? Do you think? I was doing a gig at Dereham Jazz Club. Mm-hmm. And I, I was the pianist, and Simon Spillett was the uh, was the guest doing his Tubby thing, Tubby Hayes. He was saying, "Oh God, I think I'm boxing myself into a bit of a corner with this Tubby, with this Tubby thing, you know." And I said, "I know exactly what you mean. I'm about to put out a Hoagie Carmichael project, and I reckon I'm still going to be doing it in ten years, <laughs> <laughs> you know." And 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 lo and behold, ten years later, we're both still boxed into our little corners, you know. I've I've expanded mine. You know, to to include Dudley and 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 Stan and and a bit of Gil Evans here and there, you know. But it's still repertoire based, and and it's because you know every 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 time I think, what shall I do now? Basically, what it comes down to is I I end up doing another version of what I've just done, just creating an, a, another focus. The, the people that I admire, I admire passionately, and it's a great privilege to be able to disseminate their legacy in a digestible form for for you know for the wider world. Perhaps it is time for me to sit down and write my magnum opus, though. Uh, maybe I'll do it in the autumn. Yeah, put, we'll put, put something else in your cup of tea and see what happens. An extra an extra <laughs> sugar. The um, oh, don't no, don't go crazy. Don't and don't just add sugar to your tea willy-nilly jazz fans. Anything could happen. Um, so I'm fascinated by the repertoire approach, and I'm really interested in your explanation of, of what you've just said. But to sort of take us forward, what what is it then about uh, Dudley Moore for you? Who you know, I think we all know the sort of backstory to Dudley, the you know, the Oxford organ scholar, and and then sort of raconteur and and, and writer and uh, satiricist, etc. Mm-hmm. How does he then end up lodging in your brain as someone to think about, not comparing, but doing a similar treatment that you've done for someone like Hoagie Carmichael or or Gil Evans? How, how did Dudley qualify for that? And and what is it about the show that's going to tickle the fancy of the thousands who will be applying for tickets to see your show on the 30th of October? <laughs> yeah, don't miss it, everyone. Yeah, damn right. Um, Dudley, I think, was always... Um, 
in the back of my mind a formative jazz flavor in my young in my young life mm. in the way that he probably was for an awful lot of people of my generation and maybe older and as i did the research it it's it's clear dudley moore's trio was probably the first modern jazz that middle england would have ever seen on their television yeah because he was he was featured every week in the not only but also tv show he was dudley was showbiz because he was a comedian and an actor and you know a, a sort of sparkling oscar stroke errol garner style jazz pianist jazz posterity is never going to give a guy like that credibility yeah why would they mm. you know the, he, he's, he's got more money than he knows what to do he's got more girls than he knows what to do he's obviously playing happy swinging jazz it's not cutting edge um why would jazz posterity have anything to do with that uh, and yet he kept coming up in conversation. Paul Higgs, I've mentioned, the trumpeter. Yeah. Massive Dudley fan. Simon Spillett, as it turns out, massive Dudley fan. I kept coming across musicians that go, oh, yeah, man, the other side of Dudley Moore. What a great record that is. And what a trio they were. Chris Caron on drums, mm. Pete McGurk on bass. Mm. Man, they really, really swung. And I went, yeah. I, I went back to that stuff. Um, and as I dig, as I dug in, I realized that, you know, the stuff that's remembered, if it's remembered at all, are his kind of cheeky versions of uh, standards like My Blue Heaven or, or something like that. Quite apart from the, the, the brilliant Beethoven parodies <laughs> he used to do in, uh, in Beyond the Fringe. But the stuff that really resonated as I went back were his compositions, which were surprisingly dense and complicated and unusual and original. And, and I started transcribing them and I started creating lead sheets for them. And I said, check this out, Paul. Try and play over those changes. And, and, and we were doing, I think the one that, that really blew, blew our heads off was a tune called Amalgam. Okay. And Paul said, he said, I've never played on any chord changes like this. This is really unusual stuff. So we just kept on covering gem after gem after gem. The, the show is called Jazz of Dudley Moore. And of course we do a couple of, uh, a couple of standards in there as well but it's it's mostly Dudley's compositions and they're absolutely terrific and and there's a couple I just can't believe they're not in the standard repertoire there's a tune called Poover Nova which is sort of vaguely based on descending chords that you know the, the cycle of fifth chords that Dizzy Gillespie uses in Wooden Woody New yeah but it's absolutely superb and it's brilliant to play on. And it's basically trying to write what we consider to be a slight historical wrong, because obviously Dudley went on to be a, a world-famous film star, and, and he made maybe one and a half good films, and then he made a load of nonsense for Hollywood. And of course, you know, we, we can look at somebody else's life and go, why would you do that when you could have been back in England playing jazz with Chris <laughs> Caron? You know, but, you know, think of, think of, who would have said no? Everyone would have done that, of course. You know. Too right. Uh, and, and so what we do is concentrate on his, for us, the purple patch of his music making, which is the 1960s, the, the soundtrack to Bedazzled, which has got a couple of absolute gems in, and uh, 30 is a Dangerous Age, Cynthia, which is a rotten film, but a lovely film score. And that's what we do. And we, we thread, you know, aspects of his life through it without making too big a point of it. You know, we try and keep a kind of a light touch on these things because, you know, we don't want to turn it into the Benny Green show, for God's sake. <laughs> um, <laughs> wow. 
Thank you so much. I mean, I, it's genuinely uh, wet, wet, wetted the appetite, shall we say? And uh, you love it. We, you love we, it. Yeah, I can't yeah. wait. Um, and and actually, if you're a Watford listener, I'm pretty sure that football fans at Watford Football Club unravelled an enormous banner of Dudley Moore. Um, I think in homage to the fact that he's a Watford Football Club fan as well. But I suspect he'd probably lay claim to be a Tottenham fan and all sorts of others. But who knew? I I absolutely had no idea. So in some sense. In some sense, Chris, you might be bringing Dudley home to Dudley Watford. Dudley home to Watford. There you go. Yeah. yeah, He was a Dagenham boy. I don't know why he was supporting uh, Watford. But, uh, but, you know, all sorts of things. Apparently there are people who live in Watford who support Ipswich Town. <coughs> now, <laughs> um, what can I say? Uh, are you ready, Chris, for my brand new yeah. quickfire quiz challenge? Go on. Then. Okay. It's called Dr. Professor Jelly Rollingham's 10 Decades of a Century of Jazz Choices Super Quiz. So... Okay. I'm going to give you a decade, and I will give you a location. And then I will give you two choices to opt from. Think of it as a series of one-to-one jazz-offs. Right. Question one. 1910s, New Orleans Hot Pot, Louis Armstrong or Buddy Bolden? Well, it's Louis Armstrong, isn't it? Because I don't know what Buddy Bolden sounded like. Question two. 1920s, Chicago Calling, uh, Lil Armstrong, nay Hardin, or Jelly Roll Morton? It's Jelly Roll, isn't it? Okay. Uh, so we speed forward to 1930s New York orchestrations and Carnegie Hall. Duke Ellington or Count Basie? Ellington. I don't think anyone's going to argue either um, with any of your answers to any of them. 1940s New York jazzers be bopping at Minton's Playhouse. Charlie Parker or Dizzy Gillespie? Charlie Parker. Nice. I love I love them both. Uh, I just like Charlie. I just like Charlie a bit more. It's not controversial, kids. And hold on, <laughs> let me just tally up here. We're at twenty-one point five, and if I put that over the the common denominator from earlier, yeah, you're on, you're on, you're on par. <laughs> right, nineteen fifties Newport Jazz Festival, and the year is nineteen fifty-seven. Yep. Now we're very interested in your answer here. Ah. Ella Fitzgerald or Billy Holiday? Ella Fitzgerald. Billy was past her prime by then. Mm. I like mm. to hear. And mm-hmm. healthy young Billy swinging away with Lester Young and Teddy Wilson. But Ella in mm-hmm. 1957 was absolutely at the peak. She was at one of her peaks. She was at the plateau that she would, you know, occupy for uh, for uh, three or four decades or whatever it was. She's uh, she's quite a phenomenon. It's a beautiful answer <laughs> and not altogether uncracked. Um, now, 1960s, London calling and vibing anew. Tubby Hayes... Or Kenny Wheeler? I like them both uh, for entirely different reasons, of course. I will be able to vibe Kenny's contemplative, forward-thinking, tone-poem-style compositions. Beautiful stuff. But if I just want sheer excitement and sheer rhythmic pizzazz, then it's tubby. Don Tootin. 1970s. We're doing quite well here. 1970s, a focus on fusion. Miles Davis or Jaco Pistorius? Uh, Jaco Pistorius. Okay, there are three questions left, right. Chrisingham. Yep. Are you ready? 1980s, worldwide soloist acclaim, no matter the city, Carla Bley or Michael Brecker? I'm going to go Carla. Woo, good. 1990s, New Orleans still runs deep, Winton Marsalis or Branford Marsalis? I'm going to go Winton. Final question, and uh, let me just tally you up so you know what you're <laughs> dealing with. You're, you're absolutely on schedule to break all records here on your own quiz. So, since 2000 and the rise of the London scene and New York still the Big Apple, will you choose Lady of the Hour, Emma Jean Thackeray, or Man of the Moment, Theo Croker? 
Oh, come on. You know, you've made those names up. I don't know who those people are. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) An interesting final pair, 21. If you take that over, I'm going to round it up and give you 100. I don't think I deserve it. I I, I clearly haven't heard of anybody since 1975. So, you know, that's no good. Well, no, I took off 900 for your failings (laughs) in the last 20 years. (laughs) Right. That was a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Now, for my set question, Chris. Jazz. A useful and definable genre or a confusing and undefinable pedantry? Discuss. Uh, I'll go A. A useful and defining genre while also having a side order of B because both are true, of course. God is in the nuance and the details. Of course, it's a a, a multifaceted, um, magnificent, music which is a it's a handy uh, umbrella i don't think it always helps um the music's commercial prospect because i think there's a lot of people have jazz blindness you know they see the word jazz they see the j word and they immediately assume they won't like it or they immediately see, assume it's for other people you know and i think this is something jazz has, has, has battled with for mm. for decades that uh, oh i'm just not a jazz person do you even <laughs> how do you define that you know that's just bizarre you know i think it's i think it's handy but it can be problematic so there we are it's a and b so your top 3 albums what do you go back to again and again uh a jazz portrait of frank sinatra by oscar peterson absolutely essential and i still i do go back to that one and i am still absolutely astounded at the perfection of those miniatures because none of them are about not nothing is longer than about two minutes 15 seconds incredible concentrated swing Mm. invention arrangements on the fly the magnificence that is ray brown and ed thigpen oscar is absolute peak anyway that one locked in uh still go back to that one i will also put my name to chet baker sings with uh, Russ Freeman on piano, Jimmy Bond on on drums. This stuff is deep, deep into my musical mm. DNA, and it's it still it still knocks me out. Um, Beautiful. So that Chet Baker sings 1954, 1956 sessions uh, on on a, uh, on Vogue, and I'd say for my third record that changed my life was uh, the Dave Frischberg Songbook Volume One. And I bought it at Garron Records in Cambridge. And I bought it simply. I'd never heard of Dave Frischberg. I'd, and this is, in, this is in the days when I would do this sort of stuff. I basically only, only, I only did one thing yeah, between yeah. the ages of 13 and 23, which was buy records. You know, and I wondered what you were going to say then, Chrisingham. <laughs> well, <laughs> there, were, there were two other things I did. But let's, talk, <laughs> let's, concent, let's concentrate on my, on my buying records and listening to records. And in those days, I, I saw this album, Dave Frischberg's uh, Songbook, Volume 1, and it was just a picture of Dave. It was a green cover, and there was the quote across the top, and it just said, when I was hip to be hep, I was hep. And for some reason, I just thought, I'm going to buy this record. And it, was, it wasn't cheap either. It was, about, it was about 10 quid or something, you know, in the... In the, uh, in the That's proper money. In the, in the late 70s or something like that. And it totally changed my life. I'd, ne- I'd never heard such wit and erudition and uh, 
uh, and clarity uh, and, and wordplay and, uh, and humanity all set to a singer, you know, singer pianist. Frischberg is, is, is a huge hero of mine. A guy who, is, on one level, has no real singing voice at all. And yet, mm. why was my heart breaking when I heard him sing, Do You Miss New York? How does that happen? And I realized that actually, Ella Fitzgerald uh, aside, uh, and actually lots of other singers aside, the, the people that I really respond to, the singers I respond to, are often just musicians who, who play, their, play their accompaniment and sort of murmur their way through the song getting absolutely to the heart of things without mm, making mm. a big deal of singing the song. They just have the song come through them. And somebody said this to me once uh, uh, about about my singing. They said, um, "Oh, I like you. I like what you do there uh, with the." It was a, I think it was uh, after the Hoagie Show, or in the interval. Yeah. And he said, uh, "Oh, I like what you're doing with the with the the the, the vocals. Not really singing, though, is it?" I said, what do, you, what do you mean? <laughs> Thinking, where's this going? Uh, and he said, no, nah, it's not really. It's sort of more speaking, but with the tune, isn't it? And I went, ah, yeah, that's what I do. And actually, that's what the guys that I really respond to, that's what they do as well. And Frischberg, as well as, well as being a, a, a genius of a, of a uh, songwriter, that's what he does with his vocals. And that's what gets me right in the solar plexus. Nice. So, what have we got? We've got Jazz Portrait of Sinatra by Oscar Peterson. We've got Chet Baker Sings mm-hmm. from the from the mid-50s. Mm-hmm. And we've got the Dave Frischberg Songbook Volume 1. Yeah. They are yours. Thank you. Now, what greater reward can I now give you, Chris, than a review of our house band, which um, some say is the most eclectic fantasy house band in podcast show business. <laughs> Others say something different. Right now, currently, thanks to some uh, dodgy dealings by Fergus McCready and Shree and uh, Rohangis, we've got John Bonham on the drum kit. We have Eberhard Weber on the bass. Mm. We have Chris Potter on the piano. And we have John Hassel on trumpet. Plus, Martin Hayes and Aidan O'Rourke on violins. Now, your task is to remove any musician, if you fancy... Uh, but also to bring in a new player to our mix, no matter whether they've shaken this mortal coil or whether they're still going strong. Who should you like to edit, review, input to our house band, and why? Okay, uh, we'll take Chris Potter off the piano, please. Uh, Hi, Chris. uh, Sorry, I would like Joe Tempoli on bass... Never had Joe in the band. ...on bass saxophone. He can bring his baritone along as well. And uh, yeah, so that'll create nice. that'll create a little bit of interest in the in the in the bottom end. Okay, and it's uh, Aberhard, and it's now Joe Temple. Let's take John Bonham off, and uh, right. I think what we're going to do is I'm going to put in Ed Thigpen. He's in. This is great. These are two whole new musicians <laughs> to our house band after thirty plus episodes. We've never had Ed nor Joe before. And we're going to take them, gladly. Thank you very much. That was very considered and very exciting. <laughs> so, Chris, all I can say is thank you for being with us today. And we cannot wait to see you in person on the 30th of October here in Watford. Yes, the Dudley Moore Show. I'm very proud of it. We'll create nothing but joy to anyone who, uh, who ventures there, I promise you. I love it. 
So if you've liked what you've listened to, subscribe and don't miss any episodes. And if you want to know more about Watford Jazz Junction, check out our website at watfordjazzjunction.com or follow us on various social media. Um, you can even email us at jazzwatfordlive at gmail.com, but only to say nice things. Next up, we've got the perennially busy and popular singer Esther Bennett, who I'm most excited to be chatting with. But until the next time, it's goodbye, lovely listener. It's goodbye, Chrisingham. Goodbye, it's been fun. And wherever you are in the world, stay safe and always remember to connect with something new. Bye. Bye.